weekly defence podcast, the show about defence procurement, military technology and the industry that gets the kit into the hands of the warfighter. We are brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, NAMO. I'm your host, Helen Haxel, Air Domain Editor here at Shepherd Media, and I'm coming to you from our global headquarters in a leafy West London. On the show this week, we will be covering IDEX 2019 in Abu Dhabi, taking a look at all the latest in defence and technological developments across the services. And our sponsor, NAMO, provides this week's Industry Voice segment. So welcome to our coverage of IDEX 2019. It's day three of the show and we're just taking a quiet moment, a rare quiet moment to uh, have a catch up on the Shepherd stands. Uh, I'm Tony Skinner, VP of Content here at Shepherd Media, and I'm joined by Beth Mondral, uh, Deputy Lands Editor. Hi, Tony. And Richard Thomas, esteemed Editor-in-Chief. So it's been a very busy show. Um, we've been covering all the news from across the uh, various domains Beth, we start off on the, the land domain. Um, a lot of vehicles out there. What's kind of caught your eye this uh, over the last few days? Yeah, so um, anyone that's anyone has uh, brought a vehicle here to um, showcase to the Emiratis and uh, the wider region. But um, there's been a bit of news regarding new vehicles and uh, new versions of vehicles. So Emirati company Nima has displayed its Ashban 447A uh, for the first time, um, doing a big unveil on day one of IDEX to the VVIPs attending the show this week. Essentially, new features of the vehicle mean that they've been able to increase the cabin size to fit an extra seat in, and the payload size has also been increased. On the contract side of things, though, uh, there was a win for Paramount, a South African company who has signed a contract with the UAE for its Mbombay 4. Uh, the Mbombay 4 is a 4x4 vehicle which is being displayed here at IDEX for the first time. As well as the uh, 4x4s, there's also been a lot of 8x8s at the show this week. Uh, You've got Patria's AMV here with a new turret integration from Leonardo, as well as a local company, Calidus, which has showcased its Wahash 8x8 for the first time. The one on display here this week is one of two prototypes which is currently undergoing testing and certification, but the details on that can be found on the Shepherd Media website. And of course, another thing that's drawn quite a lot of attention this week at the show is Norinco's new vehicle, which is a Red Arrow 10 uh, vehicle-mounted anti-tank system on an 8x8. Now, the vehicle is being shown here for the first time, and it apparently has amphibious capabilities. It's got the propellers on the back to showcase that. But when we spoke to officials at the company, they said it'd only be able to travel in water up to 1.5 metres deep. Um, Whether the vehicle has got potential is still to be determined. So a big presence from from China at the show. Uh, But Richard, generally it's it's been a really busy one uh, here this week. It certainly has been a very busy show. Um, IDEX... IDEX brings uh, a different range of, or a different feel to, to, to many other defence shows. It draws a different kind of 
sometimes a different kind of defence company, sometimes a different kind of VVIP. Of course, we've had uh, Ramzan Kadyrov, who's the head of the Chechen Republic. He was in attendance for the opening uh, capability demonstration on the first day. Um, so, yeah, companies um, have taken a chance to showcase some of their wares to potential buyers in the region and uh, around the world. Uh, but I think, I mean, if, if, you, if you look, if you want a statement to be made about IDEX, you don't need to look any further than China. I think what they've done... Um, in terms of bringing uh, industrial representatives to the show, to both IDEX and NAVDEX, is as much as showing the platforms they can sell into the region, but also just demonstrating the amount of industrial power that the country has. Um, the Chinese company CSSC uh, is uh, moving through a preliminary design phase for um, a trimaran frigate, which looks an awful lot like the Independence class in service with uh, the US Navy. Um, it's a little bit a little bit larger maybe, but it also has a, a vertical launch system fitted. So it's obviously a much more kinetic vessel if and when it ever comes into service, whether that would be service with the plan or with another operator. We're not actually sure. Um, outside of uh, IDEX and the show floors, um, the large warship display over in Port Zayed um, is another statement of intent from China. Now, of course, navies are bringing, bringing over frigates and uh, destroyers. What China's done is uh, bring over its, um, its Type 71 um, amphibious landing dock. That's a 25,000 ton vessel. So in terms of uh, showcasing power, well, it's, 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 it's an order of magnitude larger than anything else that's on that warship display. Um, so I think if you think of China as making a statement of intent and were there to be any new great game taking place that China sees the Middle East very much part of its sphere of influence and that any contest wouldn't be confined to the Asia-Pacific region. Um, we've actually also, outside of China, a very, very big piece of news there, but uh, outside of that, we, we, we managed to jump on board a, a Royal Saudi Navy vessel, um, a Bada-class guided missile corvette, and had a, a chat with the XO there, so that was also very interesting. Yeah, thanks, Richards. And we've got the audio from your, from your visit to the Saudi ship, which we're going to listen to now. Well, we promised we'd get you on board one of the vessels here at Navdex, and uh, it's not taken that long. Actually, we find ourselves on board uh, the Royal Saudi naval vessel Al Yamuk. It is a Bada class guided missile corvette, uh, one of four built in the US for the Saudi Navy. This ship itself was commissioned in 1982, so it's quite old at this point. It's 39 years old. Uh, some of its capabilities include a 4,000 nautical mile range at 20 knots, a crew complement of uh, 75, give or, give or take. Um, its weapon systems are numerous indeed. It's a very, very kinetic ship. It has a 76mm main gun from Otomolara. In terms of missile capabilities, that's delivered through uh, eight harpoon uh, anti-ship missiles. Again, an aging system, but still very, very capable, very, very destructive. It also has a close-in weapon system. Um, and generally conducts maritime patrol and security operations in and around the region. Um, we're fortunate enough actually to have spoken just, just previously to Commander Al Abedi, uh, the ship's XO, um, a little bit about the ship's capabilities and also its operations in 2018 and what it might be doing in 2019. Yes, as you, as you see, uh, this uh, ship uh, 40 years old, but uh, still uh, has... Uh, high uh, readiness okay it's uh, because it's uh, operated by uh, high professional uh, officers and enlisted uh, we actually conduct in our operation uh, concept uh, to uh, make the region uh, stable also uh, these days we help uh, our 
يمني جوفرمنت تو ريستور ذا ليجيتيمسي سون ان شاء الله اكشلي ذا شيب اوبريشن اريا ان ان بوث ان ريد سي اند ان ذا جلف ذا ارابيان جلف افتر وي باك تو اور اساينمنت اوبريشن يس وي باك تو اور اوبريشن اريا So there it is, uh, as Commander Alibedi said, this vessel and her crew have been operating in the waters off Yemen and conducting maritime security operations. Off camera, uh, he spoke to me about some of the threats that the vessel and uh, the crew obviously face. These include attacks by uh, manned skiffs, but also by unmanned surface vessels conducting bombing runs and attacks. Uh, indeed, he alluded to a, an attack on a, a raw Saudi Navy mine countermeasure vessel by possibly an unmanned uh, vessel that left uh, significant damage to that vessel. Um, also, he spoke to me about the, the need for, for himself and the crew to make split-second decisions while conducting these operations, and indeed these decisions are life and death. So, for more from Shepherd Media at Navdex, uh, check out the website. We wanted to take a short break into the podcast to tell you about Shepherd Studio. Studio is our branded content offering, which gives industry a more creative way to tell their stories. Shepherd Studio works closely with companies and event organisers across the aerospace and defence industry to provide bespoke co-branded solutions. Whether it is support of a particular campaign, content surrounding a major trade show, or bringing Studio on board to more effectively tell a company story. Studio has already been adopted by many of the major defence primes. If you're interested in learning more about Studio projects and how they could benefit your company, please contact us at www.shepherd.studio. So I'm here at the IDX exhibition. Uh, it's IDX 2019 in Abu Dhabi. I'm on the Raytheon stands. It's the first morning of the show and it's, a, it's quite a bustling uh, environment we've got ourselves here, but we've... We found a quiet corner. I'm with Jeffrey Meyer, who's the business development manager for the RAM program, which has yeah, seen a lot of interest, I guess, in, in the UAE itself. So perhaps to start off with Jeff, just, just for context, if you could run us through, you know, what is RAM, you know, what is the program, and, and uh, what does it mean in a regional context? Okay. Uh, the RAM rolling airframe missile is an anti- or a ship self-defense system for uh, cruise missiles that are coming after the ship. It's uh, about a 40-year program that we have cooperative program between the Germans and the American government. And then we have German uh, industry and U.S. industry. And we're the U.S. side of the house with uh, Raytheon. And uh, what you see on the, the um, screen there is the Ram Block 1. That was, about, that was uh, in the late, early 1980s, came into existence. The one that's up above here is the Ram Block 2. That program is, uh, came into existence in 2004, fielded in 2005. Uh, the, new, the new airframe, this is probably going to uh, keep the missile relevant for probably the next 20 years and without having to do anything other than maybe some software ups, updates. The capability of being able to do high-stress uh, uh, supersonic turns is what makes the Ram Block 2 very formidable. It's steered with the canards up on the front end, and it's got a uh, dual-pulse uh, engine in the back end there that gives it all the power that it needs to uh, uh, go after the threats that are coming in. 
The, uh, as far as where we're deployed over here, the, the UAE has bought, uh, they have two ship classes, the Bainuna and the Ariala class. The Bainuna has uh, RAM and ESSM. The Ariala class has only got uh, RAM on it, the rolling airframe missile. So they're, and they're equipped with both the Block 1 and the Block 2s. And in terms of that sort of concept of the layered missile defense, where does this sort of fit in the picture? This is, this is the close end. So short-range defense system. The ESSM is the next layer out that would take it out beyond, uh, well beyond our range. Um, and it's, with the two of those, I feel very confident that the Bainunas will be able to protect themselves from any of the threats that are in the region right now and probably for the next 20 years. And, and I guess we've, we've reported on a lot of uh, shipbuilding activity across the region, a lot of sort of so the OPVs, Corvette, frigate classes um, sort of being introduced. Is that creating a ready-made kind of marketplace for you guys in the region? I mean, are you, are you talking to other countries about this capability? Yes. Right now we've had, uh, in, since I've been with the program in the last four years, we've had uh, three new customers. So that's always a good thing. Um, and there's more in the region that are looking into this uh, as soon as they start their ship build then we would get notified and we would be putting the RAM or ESSM on those cap- or those ships as well. Looking f- further forwards, you know, anything for the future in terms of uh, what this capability can, can achieve? Uh, well, we're, uh, we're after the low probability and intercept targets, so that's a new capability that we have. It was a huge increase in capability of the seeker and uh, the... Uh, the high G uh, targets that are, or missiles that are coming in for the ships, doing weaving and uh, coming in from different angles are not a problem for this. They're much bigger. We're a little smaller, so we can turn inside their turning radius and we're able to engage them. So I don't see us having to put a new one on the uh, maybe a software change every now and then. But right now, I think we're a pretty capable missile. Very Great. Successful. Jeffrey, thanks for your time. We appreciate yeah, it. Pleasure. So I've now been joined by Jerry Uber, uh, who's going to tell us about the Evolve Sea Sparrow missile. Uh, Jerry, perhaps you just introduce yourself a little bit and then uh, give us a, uh, some context in the program. Thank you. Uh, I'm Jerry Uber. I'm the vice president for the Strategic and Naval Systems product line at Raytheon Missile Systems in Tucson, Arizona. The Evolve Sea Sparrow missile is a primary product in our portfolio. In 2018, we celebrated the 50th anniversary of the Evolve Sea Sparrow Missile Consortium. What began as a four-nation partnership in 1968 has evolved into a 12-nation co-invest, co-develop, co-production of over 3,000 missiles, over 330 live missile firings. Uh, In addition to the members of the consortium, we have uh, three third-party nations who use ESSM uh, in their navies. That's Thailand, uh, Japan, and here we are in the Emirates. And then over those many years of, of development, I mean, how, how has the capability evolved? Um, and, you know, what, what, what is the system like today? Well, the system has evolved from a Sea Sparrow missile to the evolved Sea Sparrow missile, and now we are in the uh, finishing the developmental phase of what would be known as the ESSM Block 2, 
which takes the current semi-active capability, adds an active capability to counter the present and future threats in a ship, ship self-defense uh, role. And you mentioned the UAE. Uh, how, how is the country, since we're at IDEX, uh, how is that country in particular employing the, the missile? The uh, ESSM missile is on board the Bainuna class here in the, uh, in the Emirates. And uh, it has been a long-standing relationship that we have here in the country, both with the Emirati Navy, with also uh, Abu Dhabi Shipbuilding, and uh, just recently, we have put a landed company here in the Emirates, Raytheon Emirates Limited. Is that the ribbon cutting ceremony that's happening later today? Tomorrow it is. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Yes. Great. And, um, you know, what's kind of on your, on your desk at the moment? You know, what's your current priority? Presumably it's getting that block two configuration beyond the developmental program and into production. Well, we have two priorities that we're working uh, inside of inside of our business one certainly is to complete the development of ESSM block two and then the second priority is uh, as we close out ESSM block one there is a need for all members of the consortium plus the three third party uh, users today for test rounds for spares and we are bundling that to provide a pricing uh, that, that, that is the best pricing available for the uh, scale of efficiencies that we can gain in a last buy of the ESSM Block 1 here in 2019. And then all those user companies, obviously, sorry, user countries, um, will be upgraded to the Block 2 configuration sort of over time um, as it comes online. That, that's certainly the plan right now for the consortium and also for, for, for the thir- third-party uh, users. I would also say there's a unique aspect to the, to the ESSM program in not only do we service uh, the navies of the world, but that consortium is also an industrial cooperative program where in each of the 12 members of the consortium, we are paired Raytheon with an industry partner that that has, again, participated in this co-development, co-production to get us where we are today. Uh, I feel comfortable saying that is, it is by far the most successful co-development, co-production program that has existed anywhere in the world, just celebrating our 50th anniversary. Great. And just lastly, Jerry, um, I guess when we hear about Evolved Sea Sparrow, uh, it's in the context of its integration with kind of the, the naval combat systems. Um, could you give us a little bit of feel for the for how that integration kind of works? It's, it's a great uh, discriminator for the ESSM program in that ESSM is designed with the broadest degree of system compatibility in mind. Uh, this, this effector is integrated into a significant number of ship builds and combat management systems, radars, uh, search radars, fire control radars, and threat evaluation and weapons assignment uh, programs. It, it is not a... Uh, one missile, one launcher, one ship, one radar system. It is completely flexible across the international community. And that, again, is a discriminator uh, of this missile.
Great, Jerry. Thanks for your time. with Matt Smith, our Director of Analysis at Shepherd Media. Hi, Matt. Hi, Helen. Matt, you and your team have been working tirelessly on the Shepherd Plus Business Intelligence Service. So what can we expect from Shepherd Plus in 2019 in terms of further development or upgrades to the system? So our database provides information on who is buying which military equipment. That's the core of it. Each record contains information on order and delivery numbers, unit costs and product attributes. Our clients use Shepherd Plus really to identify market opportunities, to track and assess their competitors and benchmark their own analysis. So we're shortly going to add a naval warfare module and we plan to expand our coverage further and to include combat aircraft. We're also developing a programs module which will cover unawarded procurement programs. Uh, the idea behind this is to give uh, more insight into what's going on in the future with the equipment programs. Um, and our first program forecast will cover military vehicles and we expect that to have, to have that ready in March. A one-stop plus shop. Exactly, yes. <laughs> so thanks for giving us that um, overview of the Plus Intelligence tool. If you want further information on this, please email plus at shepherdmedia.com or visit our website. So as well as uh, quite a number of land platforms uh, and a number of naval ships alongside, there is a, uh, a number of aircraft here. We've managed to find our way down to the end of the, the line and we've got an MV-22, which is with the 22nd Marine Expeditionary Unit out of North Carolina. Um, and I'm here with uh, Scott Clifton uh, from Bell Helicopter, who's just going to run us through a little bit of an update on the, the V-22 program as a whole. So, you know, what is the status of the program, I guess, from, from your point of view? Um, and, you know, how are things progressing? Okay. So right now, obviously, we're in the uh, MV-22, which the United States Marine Corps is buying. Their program record is 360 aircraft, and they're in the process of, uh, I don't know how many aircraft we built to date, but that program is progressing. Um, also, so this is the, the MV variant. The CV variant flies with the U.S. Air Force, and they have 52 aircraft. And the U.S. Navy has also uh, joined into the multi-year three program for 44 CMV-22 aircraft, which will have expanded range, larger fuel tanks, a few extra radios, um, and that will incre- increase the total capacity of V-22s across the U.S. fleet for three different services. Uh, and in terms of the international interest, we know that Japan has signed for the aircraft. Uh, those aircraft are now in, in production and, and are being delivered? Yes, those aircraft are uh, being... In- so it is a joint venture between Bell and Boeing. Um, Boeing builds the, uh, the fuselage, Bell uh, builds the, the upper part of the wings and the nacelles, and then they're mated at our production center in Amarillo, Texas. Um, so those aircraft are being built right now, uh, and they'll be delivered uh, in, in the future. Um, and then other international interests, because of the speed, the range, and the payload of the V-22, um, makes it very applicable to, to this region especially, but also uh, the Asia-Pacific region, um, and then in parts of Europe as well. I mean, I think we've seen the UAE choose the AW609 uh, for a couple of missions. Uh, I think there's a V22 in UAE colours on your stand. Uh, can we take read into the, anything into that? Uh, there's uh, interest again because of the because of the speed and range, and when you look at the the distances in the, uh, the the Gulf region in the Asia Pacific region. Um, traditional helicopters just can't go far enough, fast enough. You need something that can that can change the game the way the V twenty two does. So there's very a lot of interest, especially in uh, in this region. 
And we've heard um, over the last few years uh, quite a lot about the, the multi-mission capability of the aircraft. Um, so as well as the kind of cargo, kind of trip delivery type role, um, you know, the aircraft can be reconfigured for a variety of other missions. Um, you know, where are you in terms of preparing the aircraft for, for some of the, you know, I guess I'm thinking about the sort of potential air-to-air air refueling capability? Uh, so the, the air-to-air capability is a, uh, the ability for the MV-22, uh, excuse me, for the V-22 platform to be able to give gas to other, uh, other aircraft, other V-22s, uh, air-to-air capable uh, aircraft. Uh, that is in work. It's a, it's a joint venture with, uh, with Bell & Boeing and also PMA-275. Great. So you've, you've got a lot of experience on the V-22 program. Uh, but yourself, you're, a, you're an H1, former H1 pilot, um, and you're also heavily involved in the, uh, the H1 program. So, so you know, what, what is the status of that program in terms of the, the U.S. buy um, and any international interest? So uh, I was an H1 pilot, so I started out in the H1W and then transitioned to the H1Z. Uh, so now I've just moved over to the H1 program to be the international program manager. Um, the Marine Corps, United States Marine Corps, has a programmer record of 349 aircraft. We have delivered all 160 of the UH-1Ys, and I think it's 119 H-1Zs to date. Uh, we have two international customers, uh, Pakistan and the Kingdom of Bahrain, and so that brings a total of 373 uh, H-1 aircraft that will be built uh, through 2022 and, and a little beyond. Um, again, the, uh, these are brand-new aircraft. Um, so we've taken everything that we've learned from when we invented the TAC helicopter in the 1960s and we continually upgraded it both on the, the UH side and the AH side until we got to the H1Z and the UH1Y, which are brand new and they're state-of-the-art attack and utility uh, platforms. And, and beyond that, so was it 2022 uh, sort of time frame, um, has, has the U.S. stated any plans to put the, the aircraft back through any kind of recapitalization, sort of, up, you know, block upgrade program? Um, is that sort of a stated requirement at this point, or is it a little bit early? Well, actually, no, it's, a, it's perfect time. So uh, the, once the aircraft were started, they started to build them in 2007. They first deployed the Yankee in 2009. Um, and since then, we've been collecting uh, new upgrades. So uh, digital interoperability, uh, full motion video, Link 16, uh, new weapons, new electronical upgrade, electric upgrades, all of those things that we've been collecting have been going into, and it's not a block upgrade program, it's a uh, structural improvements and electrical upgrade uh, that will um, not only bring up the, the fuel capacity on the UH-1Y to, for parity on the H-1Z, because they're 85% common, we want to make sure they can fly the same range. So right now there's a slight difference. So, um, And we want to make changes. And it's... Uh, it's not a midlife upgrade, it's, it's an improvement. So we've collected things to make it a better uh, combat aircraft because we've learned things with more than 25,000 f- combat hours just on the Yankee alone. So we learned things. So now we're um, finishing the trade studies and working on the upgrades. Uh, first the Yankee and then we'll uh, do the Zulu uh, in, a, in a few years. It, it's, a, it's an exciting time for the, for the H-1 because, uh, because they're brand new aircraft. Uh, all glass cockpits, everything's integrated. Um, there is a, there's a lot of interest for, uh, for countries that, that want to replace older aircraft uh, with something new. They, they like the, uh, the model of the U.S. Marine Corps because the aircraft are, they were designed for an expeditionary uh, setting. They were designed to be worked on in the field. Um, when they go out on the, uh, on the MEW, they'll take seven or eight aircraft and the number of maintainers, including pilots, the ratio is about 8 to 10. Now, you don't see that in any other platform around the world, that small number of maintainers and pilots to support seven or eight aircraft for six months on a ship 
uh, out and deployed or out in Afghanistan or in Iraq. Um, so countries are very interested in that because uh, they know if that it says Marines on the side that it can uh, that you can support it out in the field. So they're looking to replace their aircraft, and so uh, being able to hand them a uh, a combat-proven aircraft uh, is something that's very interesting to them. Scott, thanks for your time. Uh, and thanks to the U.S. Marine Corps for providing the coolest sound studio uh, that I've done a recording in. So thanks a lot. Thanks. So welcome to this week's Industry Voice. This is a part of the show that's brought to you in partnership with NAMO. I'm Tony Skinner, VP of Content here at Shepard Media. And I'm joined once again by Andre Lond, who's the SVP of Communications for NAMO. Um, so Andre... I- I recently came back from um, from Abu Dhabi where we attended the IDX exhibition. Um, it was my first time at that trade, particular trade show. Um, obviously, it's it's one of the international, one of the major shows on the international circuit this year, um, which is attended by Western companies as well as a lot of the domestic players. Obviously, given the, the wider kind of geopolitical situation, very interesting time to be doing business kind of in that region. Um, and I know you have some thoughts kind of surrounding that sort of balancing act that companies are sort of finding themselves in now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we've uh, we've made a decision this year to scale back for this particular show a little bit, uh, just because of uh, that uh, the challenges related to this. I mean, our uh, our primary markets continue to be Europe and North America, and uh, that's where we decided to keep our focus on the trade shows this year. Uh, we still have a presence at IDEX, and have had that this uh, this year as well. Uh, but we felt that it was important to show that we're a little bit responsive to the debate that's been going on and happening in, uh, particularly in Europe recently. Uh, at present, uh, most of the uh, our European manufacturing locations and the countries uh, that we're operating have uh, restricted uh, exports uh, far more to the wider region, to the Middle East. And uh, I think it's important that we show that we're responsive to that. And... Uh, we're still going to be following, of course, very closely what's going on and and uh, we'll be uh, looking at the market and trying to serve our customers there as best we can. But I think this is an important uh, factor to be uh, taking into consideration when we, uh, when we plan our presence at these events. What kind of activities do, do you guys sort of have in the region? Um, I mean, is it a case of focusing your attention, you know, more to the West you know, taking a, a sort of a bit of a breather in terms of fostering new contracts across that wider region, you know, or is, is it more of a sort of a permanent thing that you're looking at here? No, our, our strategy has always been uh, in our core markets in Europe and North America. I mean, we were founded 20 years ago uh, with the specific purpose that we wanted to, we were tasked to uh, uh, develop and grow into national market uh, during peacetime so we can support our core markets and the Nordic countries in particular uh, when they needed us. And since then we've grown significantly and uh, today we have significant operations uh, in several European countries and not least in the United States uh, where we feel a very particular responsibility to support. But uh, we will always be looking for additional markets where we can uh, provide technologies and uh, an advantage, a reliable advantage that makes a difference for our customers but we have to but we're always uh have to be very conscious of the debate happening around us we are at the very tip of the spear of uh, technology and capabilities and products and uh one uh our uh, 
national governments are uh, indicating that, okay, right now uh, we want to uh, restrict this a bit. It's like, okay, we'll listen to that. We're still going to have a presence there because as our governments are, they're working long-term and the you know, defense industry is a long-term business. Uh, we'll have a presence and we'll work uh, closely with uh, uh, local partners as well. But right now, this year, we've chosen to uh, prioritize slightly differently. And we'll see how uh, this continues to develop. But I think this is something that the industry in general, we have to uh, take into consideration. There, uh, we have to make sure that it's, that it's not so easy to paint us as uh, detached from what's going on. Uh, it's uh, a little bit too easy sometimes for uh, those wanting to criticize the defense industry to just point to the fact that we're not, that we're not responsive. Uh, so these, this is always going to be a very delicate balancing act for us because we don't want to be uh, politicizing what we're doing. Uh, we're not uh, politicians. We're not uh, the ones who are setting the terms of how we're supposed to operate. That's up to the national governments. But we also have to realize that we're part of this and uh, we have to listen to uh, what's happening around us. Yeah, certainly food for thought there, having personally come back from a show that features a vast number of Western companies as, as well as those domestic uh, players at IDEX. So thanks for your thoughts and that's been this week's Industry Voice. This episode of Shepherd's Weekly Defence Podcast was brought to you by our sponsor, Namo. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please head over to shepherdmedia.com to access all our news stories and subscriber content. We'd love to hear what you thought of the podcast, so please do subscribe, rate and give a review on iTunes or other podcasting platforms. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.